Hello and welcome to the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I'm Ross. And I'm Gordon. Hi, Gordon. Hope all is well with you today. It is following a large dump of snow that has delayed our broadcast of this podcast. Broadcast of a podcast. Awesome. Ooh, that's very nice. <laughs> but you have that look in your eye. The one that you get just before you start a fire. So what you got up well, as you correctly pointed out, it's winter again. <laughs> Thank you, snow people, and a special thanks to the people who drive the snowplows, who time their arrival just after <laughs> you get your driveway cleared. Oh, yeah. Anyway, it's winter, and once again, just like every year, some folks have forgotten that there are times when you just can't trust your camera's built-in light meter to propose an accurate exposure. So, we're going to address that this episode. I'm going to call on your real-world experience to help and perhaps to temper my enthusiasm. <laughs> okay. Hey, I've got a good temper. So, <laughs> All right, I'm ready. Okay, first question. Actually, there's two questions. Answer yes or no. Only yes or no. First, do you think that camera makers in general are building awesome light meters into their products. Second question, has it ever happened that the exposure recommended by the light meter in your camera did not work out as you planned? Well, I think you know the answer to that one. And it's yes and yes. Excellent. So given that it is winter where we are and there is snow on the ground. Everywhere right now. <laughs> everywhere right now. Can you implicitly trust your light meter recommendations? Let's say you're photographing a snowy landscape. And the answer to that one is no. This is one of those scenarios where the light meter gives a reading that uh, does not result in the effect that you want. And of course, the other scenario is when one has had enough of the winter, one tends to escape to sunny, warm beaches, and you get the same effect. But I do want to say up front that the light meter, even in these scenarios, is actually working exactly as it is designed to do. Well, I think that's well said. Uh, both the fact that a bright, sunny beach can have the same impact on a light meter as a snow scene. Of course, we live in Canada, so if you do go to a bright, sunny location, your luggage will go somewhere else, and there will be no return flight. And as long as you're okay with that, we can move ahead. So I agree. So explain, if you will, why the proposed exposure results provide an exposure or an image that you didn't want. Well, as you are known for repeating and perhaps sometimes ad nauseum, uh, reflected light meters take all the information that they gather and are designed to compute an exposure that would average out the tonality of the image into a middle gray. Well, thank you very much for paying attention, and thank you even more for not puking up. What happens when you make an image of a snowy landscape if you use what the meter is proposing? Well, if my metering pattern includes a lot of snow, 
the light meter will compute compute uh, an exposure so that what is in the pattern is rendered out as middle gray. But the problem is that the scene is not, in fact, a middle gray. It is white. And I believe that the meter and its use is unaltered. The snow will come out middle gray, and everything that is not as bright as the snow will be too dark. Yeah, that's what most people seem to see. But the internet tells us that digital sensors have massive range, and you could just increase the exposure in post-processing. Do you think that this is untrue? Well, <clears throat> there is this white-haired fellow who has beaten into our brains that uh, digital files are not tolerant of having their exposure adjusted up because of the amount of noise that this creates. As mentioned before, this white-haired fellow also stressed the following. The most important of the things that he has stressed, to my mind, is that we, in this dig digital age, have to start thinking in terms of the number of data points in the various points of the image. Bright areas get lots and lots of points in, uh, and information, and dark areas a lot less. Secondly, post-processing is incredibly boring. So it's much more to our advantage to do it right in the first place. And lastly, if the image is a JPEG, and let's face it, most of the world have never heard of RAW, and in the process of making the JPEG, the camera has probably thrown out about 70% of the pixels with the bathwater. So if I increase the exposure enough to make the snow white, because I'm lifting areas that have less data, according to your repetition of how sensors work, I crush the signal. The signal-to-noise ratio gets crushed, and you get a lot more noise. In fact, you advocate exposure to the right, which is a conscious choice to overexpose everything a bit because you can reduce the exposure in post without adding noise and will, in fact, reduce some noise as shadows become black. Well, well said, because that is how digital sensors actually gather data. There is just more data stored in the brighter areas than there is in the dark. And that is independent of the number of pixels that the sensor actually has. So if you were to break the dynamic range of your sensor into stops, each stop that you look at has twice as much data as the one to the left. So if you expose to the right, this is not a theory. It's a mathematical reality because of how sensors work. But let's get back to someone, yourself, myself, making an image of a snowy landscape. What do you do before you squeeze the shutter? I, th I believe I'm spoiled by having a mirrorless camera. So I take a meter reading and then use the exposure compensation dial 
to start overexposing the image and observing the image in the LED or the electronic viewfinder. And I keep doing that until the whites are white and the shadows have visible data and the image looks good. Of course, before I went mirrorless, I tended to shoot in aperture preferred mode. And I just dialed in plus two on the exposure compensation dial and fired away and largely hoped for the best. Maybe I should also throw in at this point that because I am inherently distrustful, I generally couple the above, that is the looking at the image in the LED, with the presence of an active histogram that shows up on my viewfinder and the LED, and I can watch both of them at the same time. I believe the histogram is pretty much always available, although sometimes not in real time. And I think using the two together reinforces the compensation read. Okay, that's a very interesting approach. Now, not all cameras support showing a histogram, or some cameras have one, and then it's buried 29 levels deep mm -hmm. uh, in the menu system. Now, one thing I did just learn computationally is that for those of us who sort of take the photography seriously, we tend to shoot in RAW, right? Mm -hmm. So from a color space selection perspective in the camera, that has no impact on the RAW, right? Yes. By that you mean whatever you set the color? Adobe RGB or sRGB. Right. It has no impact on the RAW file. Correct. But what I did learn is it does have an impact on the quality of the histogram. Because the histogram we see on the camera is not based on the raw file. Looking at, uh, at the Im embedded file. Right. And while we know that a JPEG when exported is 8-bit sRGB. Right. In the camera, apparently, now I haven't verified this, but the information comes from a pretty trustworthy source. What I was told is that if you choose Adobe RGB as your color space in the camera, it's going to have no impact on the RAW, but it may give you a more useful histogram if you use the histogram in the camera. So I'm going to go try that and see if it makes you a difference. You got my attention now. Yes, absolutely. So I think that's a, a decent experiment that maybe we should both do at some point and see if it is actually true. Now, you talked about using either exposure compensation in a non-mirrorless camera, using the histogram, and also using the power of the mirrorless camera on the LCD or in the electronic viewfinder to determine if the image looks right to you. Yep. Now, because you do this all the time, it's worked out well in every case? Well, in most cases. Sometimes I've noticed that I needed more over exposure than the exposure compensation dial could give me. I believe the exposure compensation dials are geared to giving plus or minus three, I think, EVs. Beyond those levels, whatever it's showing you means nothing. So uh, as I said, uh, it seems like I need more than the exposure compensation dial could give me 
to get the brightest whites truly white. And I noticed this more with the newer cameras than with my old DSLR. Okay, that's, that's a very interesting comment, particularly given that you stated earlier that there's a lot of folks who just don't shoot in RAW. They, only sh they shoot directly in JPEG. Mm -hmm. And as you correctly pointed out, so much data is thrown away in the creation of the JPEG that you're throwing away a significant amount of dynamic range as well. Mm -hmm. So you can't push or pull a JPEG as much as you can a RAW file. And I tested that yesterday, and we'll talk about that in a bit. Because what it tells us when you've noticed this is it means you're paying attention. So do you have any idea what the dynamic range of your camera sensor is? I believe it's rated to be about 12.8 stops. And that is uh, what I believe. And I checked with the DxO Mark folks who do rate this sort of thing, and that's what they say. So for the purposes of simplicity, we'll call that 13 stops. The old guidance of go two stops over per white and two stops under per black would imply how much dynamic range. Oh, whoopee, we got mad. Let me see, we got fingers going here. One, two, three, let's go with five stops. Exactly. Which would be just fine for a JPEG. Mm -hmm. But you choose to shoot in RAW. And you paid good money for a sensor that is nearly 13 stops of dynamic range. And most any of the modern cameras that we look at have well over 10 stops of dynamic range at least. So do you think it's possible for raw shooters that it's time for that guideline to be modified? Well, I hadn't sort of thought about that, but when you put it like that, uh, it probably is. So why is it that uh, there has been no update to the guidelines. I think it's about timing. Uh, the first digital sensors that we saw in digital cameras used what were called CCD chips or charge coupled devices in the, for the sensors and not the current CMOS, uh, complementary metal oxide semiconductor. Does somebody get paid money to come up with names like this? I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the same people who name government agencies. <laughs> Okay. So those first digital sensors had about the same range as lower ISO film stock, five to seven stops. So that guideline back then made sense. But we've got better sensors now. So what would you propose as a solution to this situation in today's world? Well, two options leap to mind. As someone who went to school for physics, I say let's do an experiment, because they're fun and you learn stuff. So do a test with your camera and see how far you can push the overexposure for snow, initially in direct sun, but also do it on an overcast day. Mm -hmm. I did a little experiment with a smartphone camera. And I found that if I shot a JPEG, I could push it two stops, maybe two and a third, and I could recover. I could get the whites where I needed them to be. And but this is on a cell phone? On a cell phone. Okay. Which doesn't have the same dynamic range, obviously. Mm -hmm. However, when I shot on RAW, I had five stops 
above oh. zero. Okay. Where there was still data that I could work with. Okay. Which I thought right. was pretty interesting. So as an experiment, I identified that there is A, a difference between JPEG and RAW, which we knew, but now I've proven it myself. I've also determined that with modern sensors, even modern sensors on a smartphone, maybe you can go plus three, plus four, and plus five. As long as we remember that the harder we push, the more adjustment you're going to have to make in post-processing. I mean, that's the whole exposed to the right thing. So if you go too hot, you really have to pull it down a little bit to get your shadows where you want them to be. Now, there is another option. This is the one that a lot of people will, go, will now turn the podcast off for because it's to use a handheld incident light meter and from the subject position, point the meter at the light source. And now the color or reflectance of the subject is not relevant because an incident meter doesn't care if it's snow, sand, coal, green grass, dirty, cloud-laden snow, whatever. Or what I expect the park paths to look like after the dogs have been by. <laughs> so that's the benefit to the incident light meter. Just take whatever the meter recommends and set those exposure settings manually. I like this method myself because if I move around or change lenses, so long as the light on the subject doesn't change, my exposure settings don't change. Now, it may not be convenient for everyone to carry an incident light meter. You might just want to use the, the tools. So you're going to make adjustments in the camera. But as you pointed out, that exposure compensation dial may not give you all the options you might want right. when you're shooting raw. In which case, maybe that's a time to consider using manual. Two, two points I just want to mention that came up when you were talking about this just now. One wonders with the cell phones... Firstly, uh, not all cell phones have the ability to shoot in RAW. That's Depending truth. upon what model you have, you need to check it out and see whether you do have that option. Uh, and you may not. But the other aspect of this whole thing is that, as surprising as your results are with the cell phone, that you could get that much latitude, one wonders whether there is a significant amount of computational stuff going on in the background. Well, I expect that there is some computational work going on in the background. So by default, and the camera I was using was an iPhone, uh, an iPhone 12. Not 12, the, I think, is yours, yeah, yes. Not the current model, which I believe is the 14 at time of recording. And I do know that by default, in the camera settings, this means the camera within the camera app within the iPhone. Okay. It does HDR by default. Correct. In the background. That's now my you, understanding. You can yeah. turn it off if you want. So for my experiment, I chose not to use the camera app. I used the Lightroom app oh, okay. on the phone, which produces a digital raw file. A DNG. Okay. Now the iPhone can shoot in its own native RAW right. as well, mm -hmm. but I wanted to I wanted to do what I could to reduce the impact of that computational photography. Okay. Yep. However good it can be, it still doesn't work in snow. Great. Snow is still gray. So I did it with RAW. 
And in that case, I think I've isolated that a little bit. Can't confirm it because I don't know necessarily what's going on in the camera itself or in the phone itself in terms of when someone, when some application makes a camera call. Right. There's a lot of hidden stuff going on in the back there, so it's... There sure is. Now, I intend to, now that we have more snow than we had yesterday... <laughs> a little more sun would be nice. Uh, I'm going to go try that again with a mirrorless camera. Okay. And see what happens. Yes. Yeah, I can see that, you know, I'll, I'll be out in a little while. Okay, so uh, why don't we see this updated guidance on the internet at this point? Well, I can't answer that question other than to say, well, it's going to be on the internet once this episode is posted. Well, there is that. Okay, so I get that. Now, uh, two questions that keep coming up, and maybe you could address these. Snowy scenes are frequently overcast, and they're dark, and they're devoid of uh, any kind of stimulating contrast. Would the assumptions that we've made to changes, uh, uh, changes in exposure compensation have an effect in this kind of scenario? And this was uh, actually... Uh, Doug and I were out shooting one time, and we were talking about this exposure compensation and shooting plus two. And uh, he said, well, wait a minute, should it actually be doing this? Because uh, look look at the dull, dreary conditions that we're in. So I don't know the answer to that. And secondly, since the sensors have so much dynamic range, would the eye, which I believe has more range than the sensors, actually pick up the point of overcompensation at which the details in the white get blown out? Okay, those are two actually very, very good questions. So let's talk about overcast snow scenes first. And I'm going to do what I often do, which annoys people to no end. Answer your question with a question. Okay. It's an overcast day. Mm -hmm. Like today. Yep. Is the snow still white? Mm, it is out there. So if it is, white is white, regardless of the color of the light. Or the quality of the light, for that matter. Okay. So on an overcast day, we could say that the light is very soft. Mm -hmm. Rather yes. than, say, on a sunny day, where we would have hard light, harsh shadows. Right. The subject, however, our snow scene is still white, or predominantly white. Now, I, unlike yourself, am not a physician by training. However, I do have some knowledge of dynamic range receptivity of the human Mark I Mod Zero eyeball. Since it's a good thing that that, uh, that was a good formation of uh, the creator of eyeball. Yes. It's an unimproved And it's un definitely unimproved An unimproved time. resource at this point in time. Since everyone's different, and some scientists use different measurement models and criteria in their experimentation, I'm going to have to make a bit of a generalization here. And the current medical optical perspective is that the normal human eye sees around 21 stops of dynamic range. Mm -hmm. Some metrics say 20, some say 22, so yes, I'm averaging. In that case, to your question, the human eye will see more detail in brighter areas to, areas to some extent, but also... Don't forget, it's going to see 
more detail in some darker areas mm -hmm. to some extent. Right. Remember that whole critter in the night might eat me. I want right. to actually have some decent dark vision. Right. So how much that is is going to depend on the eyeball customer, user, him or herself, and also how their brain converts the optical data into information. Okay, yes. Because interestingly, some of these experiments found that different people from different parts of the world are more sensitive to bright and some are more sensitive to dark. Okay. I don't know why that is. Again, but I think well, it's I think interesting. It goes back to that crit is going to eat me thing. It probably does. I think it's probably evolutionary, but I don't have any data to support that. So let me get out my favorite horse for this. This is why we talk about zone systems and zone level manipulation, which is to make as much information as is artistically effective available to the viewer of a digital image, whether it's on screen or on print. Because okay. we see more than the camera can see. Right. But we would love to be able to show that. Yes. So going going back to your explanation, uh, from what I'm getting on that, yes, uh, overexposure will make the snow white. But maybe what I, I'm getting that uh, confused or mixed up with the scene becoming white and the snow becoming white, but I'm expecting the contrast to improve, and that's not going to happen because contrast is contrast, and an overcast day doesn't have any, so you're not going to get things that are not there. So that actually makes sense. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Contrast describes the quality of the light. Right. Brightness. Brightness and darkness and describe differences the between them. You're so what what about a really dark scene and a subject? Sure. It's a great example. Just remember that the dynamic range is wider on both directions on modern sensors. So let's consider an image of a you know, the black cat in a coal mine. You may now with a modern digital sensor be able to go a bit more under than the conventional thinking of minus 2. But now we have to take into account that the meter will fall off accuracy as things get darker and that some sensors and meters can't meter effectively lower than zero EV. And most of them bottom out at minus two EV. So it's not completely linear dark versus light. But it's a good experiment to try. And that, well, that's, that's a good point, because I think I've already noticed that is uh, when I was trying some sort of low-light night photography, and uh, I was getting really terrible-looking exposures, and I'm saying, well, what, what is this doing? The, the meter is telling me it's, you know, minus 2 or minus 3. Why am I getting something that's looking, like, completely black? And, uh, well, I think the answer that you've just provided out there is that your meter will read but not in a linear fashion. And once you drop down below its sensitivity to metering, uh, it, it all becomes black. Uh, it's, that's, it's, that's the way it'll show it. It's going to become less accurate, for sure. And that's a consequence to all meters. I mean, it doesn't mean the meter in your camera is bad or you need to do a different, use a different meter. All meters have a low end. 
there's just no getting around that, at least at this point. Interesting things, meters. Well, that was not in the least bit confusing. So I think we'll stop now, but I will interject. That white snow does not the whole image make. So when you're doing this, uh, take your meter reading, but pay attention to the other things where you may be wanting some detail because uh, the risks run in both ways, that either it will become the object that you're trying to have some detail and may have some color, uh, may get overexposed, or the other way, it may be a less exposed than you wish it to be because you're looking at the snow and saying, oh, I can't see any more detail out here. And that is probably true, but your subject is still underexposed. So I, I guess the simple way of saying all, all of that is exposed for the subject, not for the surroundings, unless, of course, the surroundings is what you're photographing in the first place. To that point, let's not forget that we now have in tools like Lightroom and Photoshop and others, some pretty awesome masking mm -hmm. and selecting tools where we can manipulate exposure in just a single part of the image by masking it out. Yep. So things have gotten better. Yep. But again, if we're going to do that, we're probably going to be wanting to work with a raw image. Right. Or a raw original, because we're going to have more dynamic range. So thanks to all who listen to the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. If you like what you hear from us and shop with B&H, please consider doing so through the link on our site. It doesn't cost you anything more, and it helps us out. For the podcast, I'm Ross. And I'm Gordon. And we'll talk to you again when we have more stuff to share. <laughs>